Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. In Matthew 28, we read, And Jesus came and said to the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Today we're starting a new book series. We're going to be going through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Um, These letters were the earliest, many scholars believe, of Paul's writings. Uh, 1st Thessalonians is sometimes held up as being the first writing that we have from the Apostle. It was written somewhere between AD 49 and 51. And it's a fascinating book to study because it provides us with a window into a freshly planted church by the Apostle Paul somewhere in the middle of the first century. And if you were with us last year, when we went through the book of Acts, you might remember that Luke provides us with an account for when and how this church came to be during Paul's second missionary journey. And we'll recap that in a moment, but for now, let's start with with verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. Now, one thing we immediately notice in this text is that Paul doesn't identify himself as an apostle. And while that might seem like an insignificant detail, it sets the tone for what we're going to see uh, as we read on through this chapter and through this letter. First and foremost, this is a friendly letter. Paul loved this church dearly, as we'll see. And the purpose of writing it was not to bring discipline, and it wasn't to correct heresy. We find that in some of the other letters. But here, his main focus covers four points. It was to encourage these new believers in their faith. It was to defend the integrity of his ministry in the face of accusations that were leveled against him. Third, it was to provide instruction for living in a godly manner. And then last, it was to provide assurance relating to the eternal state of some of the believers in the congregation who had died. So before we go too far in, I do want to take a moment to recap the circumstances surrounding how this church was planted and the context that that gives for what we're going to read this morning. And for that, I may not be Marshall, but I do have a map. We'll see if I can walk and chew gum at the same time here. So, in the book of Acts, following the Council of Jerusalem, Paul and initially it was Barnabas, but became Silas, they left Jerusalem and they began to head north through Syria, uh, sharing the gospel. As he gets up to this area here, known as Galatia, this area here is um, modern day. Turkey, but at the time of Paul, it was referred to as Phrygia and Galatia, as the the districts. Um, He makes his way through, and we'll pick up 
in chapter 16, he's in the city of Lystra. And you might remember that in Lystra, is, that's where Paul picks up a new travel companion. It's a young man named Timothy who joins him. And from there, they were seeking to go into this area of Asia. But we, can, we encounter this odd scripture where it says that the Holy Spirit forbade them from sharing the gospel there. And so as they're seeking where to go next, Paul receives a vision and a dream of a man from Macedonia calling for him to come and to bring the gospel. And Macedonia is this area up over here. And so they leave this area down here in Galatia and they travel up to Troas. And it's there that Luke joins him. And then they sail across the Aegean Sea to Philippi in the eastern area of Macedonia. They spend some time in Philippi. They plant a church there. Uh, they have a fruitful ministry. And when they finish that, then that's when they head down here to Thessalonica. Now, a little background on the city. Thessalonica was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. It was a port city. So you can see it's right there on the Aegean Sea. Um, so that made it a primary trade route for the Roman Empire. And because of that, there was a large and a diverse population of people. And for that time period, it was a large city. Some scholars will put the population at around 100,000, others will put it at over 200,000. Either way, that's a very large city for that time period. And because of its purpose, there was a broad, diverse population of people who lived there. Formally, the people of Thessalonica followed the Greco-Roman pantheon of religion, and then also uh, the imperial cult, which was the Roman concept of worshiping Caesar as a god. But we find that there was also an established Jewish population there because there was a formal synagogue in the city. And so in Acts 17, Paul arrives in Thessalonica and he begins as he normally did, which was by preaching in the synagogue and reasoning first with the Jewish population there. And we read that after three weeks or three Sabbaths, that this activity began to catch the attention of the Gentile community who showed a desire to hear the gospel message of Jesus. And we read in Acts that there were a number of people who were saved there. And because of this, the Jews, they became jealous of the attention that he developed. And so, as is often the case when we read through on Paul's journeys, they formed a mob and they got the city in an uproar. And they went to go find Paul, but they couldn't locate him. So instead, they grabbed some of the brothers from the church and they brought them uh, before the local magistrates and they accused them of insurrection. Uh, they made the claim that because the Christian community was following another king in Jesus, that they were defying Caesar's edict that he be worshiped as a God. And so as that uproar is taking place, uh, Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, they have to flee by night and they move south, uh-oh, where'd my map go? There it is, south to Berea. And in Berea, they share the gospel, but the Jews follow them there. And so they continue down to Athens. And as they make their way down to Athens, we read that Timothy and Silas were dispatched back north to go and check on the state of the recent churches that were planted in Philippi and Thessalonica. And now eventually, Paul makes his way down to Corinth, down here in southern Greece, uh, the area of Achaia at the time. And it's here in Corinth that Silas and Timothy 
meet up with him again. They give a positive account of the state of the churches uh, in Macedonia. And it's from here that Paul writes his letter to the church of Thessalonica to encourage these new believers based on the report that he received. And so one thing important to keep in mind as we go through this letter and study it, that this is a church that was only between six and 12 months old. So this entire church congregation was still less than a year old. And in these introduction greetings from Paul, it's easy to, to, to blow past and skip over them and get straight into like the meat of the letter. Uh, we want to get to the important stuff. But I want to challenge that there is often very important theology that's tucked into this. And, and this is, uh, there's a good example of this here. So he refers to the church of the Thessalonians as being in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And for this new population of young believers, there's rich theology here. Later on, Paul would write in Colossians 3.3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so in this opening statement, what Paul's doing is he's spiritually contextualizing his audience. This idea of being in God is a statement of identity. So when we're in God, he no longer sees our sin and our failures. The only thing that he sees is the righteousness of the Son. And that's a liberating concept for people in this situation who will read our enduring significant affliction. It means that the debt of our sin is canceled. And it means that our relationship with God is restored and that our eternity is secure. And importantly, it's not by our effort. It's not performative. This is exclusively the work of Jesus Christ. And so for us to be in God is to be sealed. It's to be sealed in his eternal favor. It's to be sealed in the protection of his care. And it's to be sealed, most importantly, into his family. And for these young Christians who are facing trials in their daily lives, this was good news for them. And so with that knowledge, Paul speaks over them two words that we find in many of his letters, grace and peace. And now much is made about Paul and his demeanor, and how he carries himself. And I'll admit that for many years, I always pictured the apostle as this kind of stern taskmaster type of personality. You know, in my mind, he was, you know, sort of joyless and harsh and clinical and how he presented the gospel and how he handled people. And while it's true that he didn't mince words when it comes to matters of doctrine, when we read letters like this, we see a different side of Paul. There's a love and an affection that comes through in his words. He deeply cares for these people and not just for the sake of their souls. This message carries the tone we'll see of a proud father who sees God moving in and through his spiritual children. And it, while it pains him to be away from them and be separated down in Corinth, he recognizes that the trials that they're facing is going to mold their character and it's going to build their faith. So moving on to, to verse 2, we read, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you 
because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And so as with many of Paul's letters, he moves from his introductory greeting into an expression of thanksgiving. Because for Paul, he never forgets in the work that he's doing where to place his gratitude. So while, yes, it's Paul who is bringing the message of the gospel to the Thessalonians, and yes, it's the people who are receiving that message and responding, but we have to remember it's God who is the catalyst for the work that's being done in the hearts of the people. And listen how Paul describes the life of this church. He says, remembering before God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. And those words may sound familiar to you because in other letters, Paul attributes the characteristics of faith and hope and love as gifts of the Holy Spirit. These are markers of a transformed life. And typically, these are attributes that you would associate with mature and seasoned Christians. And so that's a testimony to the powerful work that God was doing in that community. Just how quickly that these became the defining characteristics of this church. And then Paul adds, for I know that God has chosen you. That's a pretty bold statement. But from there, he quickly moves on to qualify why he has this assurance. And he invokes both sides of the relationship. So for Paul, he was no stranger to evangelism. He saw the gospel received. He saw it ignored. He saw it actively rejected and fought against. But here, he immediately recognized that God was moving in Thessalonica because he wasn't just sharing the gospel. He felt like there, there was power in his preaching. And he says he saw the Holy Spirit moving and there was conviction, not just conviction in the people, but conviction in his own heart. Like he knew that the words that he was speaking to them were the words of God. And on the part of the Thessalonians, he adds that they not only received the gospel message, but they did so in affliction. And that despite the adversity that they faced, they were filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Because it's one thing to acknowledge the truth of the gospel. You know, here in America, despite the cultural erosion that we're facing, you can still go most places and find people who are willing to pay lip service to the idea of Jesus. They have no problem talking about Jesus, talking about God, the Bible, church, whatever. But they can continue living their lives however they see fit without the slightest pang of conviction. But what happens when adversity strikes? What happens when the name of Jesus results in disapproval or rejection by family members? What happens when your faith costs you a promotion at work or costs you your career altogether? What happens when your new life leads to the breakup of a relationship or being abandoned by a spouse? And maybe it's not 
a cultural rejection, but something closer to home. When the doctor tells you that the lab results have confirmed a terminal illness, or when the phone rings at 1 a.m. and there's devastating news, or when the bank notice arrives telling you that your home is under foreclosure and you don't have anywhere to go. In those moments, is your faith shattered? Or are you still able to respond with the joy of the Holy Spirit despite the pain and suffering? Can you see God through the pain? Does the adversity drive you to him instead of shipwrecking your faith? So how was it that these Thessalonians, in the middle of this conflict, were not only able to receive the gospel message, but that they found joy in the hardship and the persecution that they faced? Well, one thing we'll see to begin with is that they had an example. Because Paul writes, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And later, in Philippians 4.9, he wrote, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And so I opened this morning with Jesus giving the Great Commission. And while Paul was not present when that command was given, his commission came later, and I would argue with even higher stakes attached to it, because regarding Paul, God said in Acts, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And over the course of his ministry, Paul showed time and time again that he understood and fully embraced this call on his life to go forward and to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentile world. And in doing so, he suffered and endured all manner and form of persecution. But he never lost the joy of the Holy Spirit, no matter what kind of hardship he faced. How was he able to do this? Well, Paul understood that he wasn't simply suffering for Christ. When he faced trials, he also suffered with Christ. Because just as Jesus suffered, we follow in his footsteps. We imitate him, and we suffer with him. And that's part of our sanctification. That's how we, as believers, that's how we become like Jesus. When writing to the church at Corinth, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 5 through 7, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Again, this idea of modeling. For our hope in you is unshaken. For we know that you share in our sufferings. As you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So Christian suffering, it not only brings us closer to Christ, but then when we're suffering for the gospel, it brings Christ close to us. 
And this was a catalyst for the rapid maturity and growth that we see in the Thessalonian church. Paul modeled for them how to see Jesus through the suffering that they experienced. And Paul was able to do this because he, in turn, was imitating Jesus. And so I would offer this morning that that is what true evangelism is. That's how we go and we make disciples of all nations. We do it by living our lives as an example. Our lives should point to Jesus even in the most mundane aspects of our day. And picking up halfway through verse 7, we find the proof text here. Paul says, You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So this dramatic life change that took place in the Thessalonian church, we read that it also served to build up the other believers. This young church, by suffering well for Christ, by imitating Paul and Jesus in their own life, they were in turn modeling faith for the other believers around them. And we read that their conversion spread beyond the churches Paul says, somewhat hyperbolically, everywhere. Their testimony was beginning to outrun Paul. So he would show up places, and people were telling him about the work that had been done in Thessalonica before he even had an opportunity to share it himself. The testimony of a life that's been changed by God is powerful. It's not something that we can overstate, but we often diminish that in our own lives when we're talking to people, when we're living our lives. The Thessalonians grew up steeped in a culture of idolatry and polytheism, but when the gospel of Jesus came to them, they immediately cast off who they were and they became something completely different. They left their old lives behind to serve the living and the true God. And then we read that they awaited for his return to deliver them from the wrath to come. And that's an important part of our testimony. Not just salvation from our old selves, but salvation from the coming wrath that awaits everyone who is not in God, who is not hidden with Jesus Christ in God. That's a key component that we lose today in our presentation of the gospel. And we'll get into this more when Pastor Marshall returns and we move forward into this book. But the theme of Christ's return permeates this letter and the one that comes after it. It's literally referenced in every chapter of 1 Thessalonians. But for now, let's continue on to chapter 2. Here we'll find many of the same themes from chapter 1, but it's from a different vantage point. Whereas chapter 1 emphasized the the response to the gospel 
from the people. Chapter 2 focuses largely on the character of Paul and the model that he provided to his children in the faith. As an interesting side note, you know, Marshall, he creates these plans for our Bible study a year in advance. So by January 1, he's already mapped out every Sunday message for the entire calendar year. And I find it uh, coincidental that for the past two weeks, we've been talking about the importance of character and integrity and leadership. Because chapter 2 of Thessalonians is picking up on that same theme. We'll continue to see how character and integrity are essential qualities for leaders in ministry. When leaders are morally or ethically compromised, it can have a devastating effect on not only their life, but on the people that they're responsible for. But when they stand on God's word and they themselves are imitating Jesus, then God can work powerfully through those leaders in order to create strong and resilient disciples as we see in this church. So chapter two, verse one, for you yourselves know brothers that are coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness to declare our God, or <clears throat> we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And here we find a shift in Paul's posture. What's coming next, we can infer that there have been accusations leveled against him, specifically relating to his character and his motives in Thessalonica. He references the experiences that he had in Philippi, where they ministered just before coming there. So what was it that happened in Philippi? Well, if you're familiar with the story, there was an effective response to evangelism taking place. And as Paul was traveling and sharing the gospel, we read that there was a slave girl that had started following them, proclaiming and calling out that they were messengers of God. And while that may look fine on the surface, we read in the text that she had a spirit of divination and she was demon-possessed, and that was what was compelling her to call that out. So eventually Paul gets frustrated and he casts the demon out of her. Well, we read that this slave girl's owners become angry because he's just cost them their livelihood. She can no longer tell fortunes. And so they drag them before the magistrates and they publicly beat them without a trial. They throw them in prison and they're put in shackles. And that was their lot until that evening, God sent an earthquake and literally broke the prison open and set them free. And before they left, they actually managed to get a public apology from the magistrates for violating the law on themselves because Paul was a Roman citizen. and It was illegal to beat and imprison a Roman citizen without a trial first. And so Paul shares this story to remind the people in Thessalonians that he wasn't afraid of conflict. You know, a little rabble-rousing in the town square wasn't going to shake his boldness in proclaiming the gospel. He'd faced a lot worse, and he would continue to for the duration of his ministry. But also here, I don't get the impression that he was trying to convince them of who he was, because they knew Paul. 
But what he's doing here is, is he's explaining why he lived his life the way that he did when he was with them. Later on, he'll explain this to Timothy and to Titus in their letters as living above reproach. And so in verse 3, we read, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from the people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles for Christ. So let's pause there. <clears throat> In these four verses, Paul defines for this church his character. And they describe not only the way he preached and ministered to the people, but they reflect who he was as an individual. And so I'll, I'll ask somewhat rhetorically this morning, why is it that character is so important to God? Well, character is a reflection of who we are on the inside of us. Because we can live our lives so that we easily fool other people, and unfortunately, we can live our lives to where we often deceive ourselves. And I've read that character is described as what a man would do if no one found out. And that's the problem. Because there's nothing hidden from God. Our character is who we really are. It's not who we want to be. It's not who we pretend to be. It's not who we think we are. It's the real us. We read a little while back in 1 Samuel, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so God will see to it that who we are is exposed, whether good or bad. And we can look around us now, and we can see that we're experiencing a crisis of character in nearly every level of the church. At this point, no denominations are clean, and no non-denominations are clean. And this is why Paul stresses the need to, leave, to live blamelessly, and why he sets this expectation for the younger believers who are under him. We'll see this message again and again in his writings. And I can tell you as someone who's been a part of this church for over four years now, I'm grateful to serve in a church where our senior pastor walks with integrity. And not only that, but he demands integrity from those who serve under him. Because if you can corrupt or take out a shepherd, it leaves the entire flock vulnerable. And more importantly, as a spiritual leader, it dishonors God. And so let's take a look at what Paul says in these verses about himself. So we'll notice here that he's not just describing his theology or his preaching style or his rhetoric. He's also emphasizing the non-ministry parts of his life. And so for Paul and for us, there's no line of separation between your ministry and your life. 
Who you are on a day-to-day basis cannot be any different than who you are in the context of ministry. Because if it is, then that means that one of those things are false. And I, I probably don't have to go into which one of those things that is. Now, one hint that we have that Paul was addressing accusations against him is that he begins by refuting the negative. He talks about what his appeal to the Thessalonians wasn't, and he lists eight specific things. First, he says it was not from error. Paul spoke the truth always to them. It wasn't from impurity. And in scripture, this word impurity almost always pertains to illicit sexual practices. And in these Greek Gentile communities where sexuality was a common element in their religious practice, Paul was not using spirituality as an instrument for feeding sexual appetites. Number three was not to deceive. Number four, It was not to please men. Number five, it was not with flattery. All three of those are methods of manipulation. Paul didn't emotionally manipulate his hearers in order to evoke a response from them. Number six, he says it was not with a pretext for greed. He wasn't after their money. It was common practice then, as it is now, to grift the people because it's easy to manipulate people into lining your pockets by monetizing spirituality for your personal wealth. And number seven, he was not seeking glory from men. Paul didn't care about human praise. He wasn't trying to become an influencer He didn't have a YouTube channel. He didn't have three million followers on TikTok. That's not what drove him. And then number eight, it says he was not making demands based on his position. Paul never used his authority as an apostle in order to create power for himself. But it's interesting as we go through this list, these are the same adjectives we use today when we describe false teachers. It's like an inverse of it. And I think it's fascinating that generation after generation, that abusive leaders in the church have always used the same tactics. And I think it betrays weakness in our heart, in our fallen humanity, that we're prone to these things. So Paul was intentional in setting himself apart from this and describing that his life was emulating the life of Jesus, that that was the only thing that he focused on. And as we pick up in verse 7, he moves on from refuting accusations of the negative in his conduct to describing his heart and the actions toward the people. And it's interesting that he uses the language of parenthood to do this. In verse 7, he says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. He wasn't harsh. He wasn't hyperbolic or threatening. He didn't browbeat them. He was gentle 
So it's like a nursing mother. And that paints a picture, right? I mean, in our culture, there really aren't many representations that are better at depicting the concept of care and gentleness than that of a mother breastfeeding her child. So much so that it's, it's, it's almost uncomfortable to hear a man use this to describe himself. But Paul was intentional in these words that he chose. His love for this church was such that he willingly gave not only of the message that he was called to preach, but of his own life. He lived sacrificially, as a mother does. And there's an important lesson here, because it's easy for us to slip into a mindset where we pantomime love for others. But in reality, many times those relationships are really are transactional. We care about others insofar as they meet our expectations, or that they agree with us, or that they benefit our lives in some way. But what happens when a relationship costs us? When loving someone doesn't benefit us at all, but actually inconveniences our life? Not that you ever experienced that. (laughs) Are we still willing in those situations to give of ourselves? Are we still able to be patient and gentle? And he goes on in verse 9, he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. For you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a, worthy, in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And so having begun with this example of a nursing mother to describe their gentleness and their sacrificial giving, he now pivots to this paternal metaphor to counterbalance this, to show the totality of his love. But what's he getting at here? We'll find later in this letter and in 2 Thessalonians that there was an issue of idleness within the church because the people there were so ready and so expectant of Jesus' return that they were like, cool, I'm just going to coast for a while. I'm going to stop this work thing and I'm just going to wait for Jesus because he's coming back like any minute. But for Paul... He was never one to just tell people how to live their life. He showed them. He showed them by his work ethic and by setting aside his own comfort in order to provide for the needs of his spiritual children. He used his own life as an example to model what godliness and right living looked like. And and then he encouraged them to follow him by comparing his relationship to them to that of a father with his children. Now dads, this one hits close. I can say firsthand as a dad. The role of a father is to show their children sacrificially what it looks like to live a holy and a righteous and a blameless life. And that is no small task. And then 
to walk alongside them, encouraging them, helping them, nudging them along as they learn to do the same by watching us. And when they fall, we help them up and we dust them off. And when they succeed, we celebrate. We're to teach them how to walk in a manner worthy of God. And that's what Paul did and is continuing to do here in this letter. As he shared the gospel, he loved, served, and cared for these people. And in front of them, he himself imitated the life of Jesus Christ. He demonstrated for them patience and long-suffering, joy in the face of hardship and affliction, the pursuit of holiness, steadfastness, hard work, obedience. And in doing that, he didn't just create converts, he built disciples. And we'll see that here in this next section. Beginning in verse 13, for we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. And to me, this section ties back directly to what we covered in chapter one. Because the fruit that was produced in their church, their imitation of Paul and of Christ, their ability to exhibit the joy of the Holy Spirit in the face of affliction, it comes down to this. Paul said, when you received the word of God, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. There are so many churches now that treat the word of God as a collection of man-made stories. They're mostly good ideas, cobbled together by, you know, these ancient, uneducated shepherds and some fishermen. They're not sophisticated like we are. And so because of that, they pick it apart. They keep what's convenient and they discard whatever they find problematic or unpleasant. They try to bend and recast scripture to better reflect our modern sensibilities and to make it more seeker-friendly, which is not a term that you will find anywhere in New Testament scripture. But when you receive and accept it as the word of God, it changes you. And that's the tragedy of misapplying and mishandling and recasting scripture 
because it changes you rather than you seeking to bend it and recast it to your will. God begins surgery on our hearts and he begins bending and recasting us. And then we find that our will submits to his will. And then our desires begin to reflect his desires. And that, Paul says, is what gives us the ability to suffer joyfully. As the Thessalonian church did, and before that, the church in Judea, and before that, Jesus Christ in his own life and ministry. It starts us on a journey of becoming like Jesus when we receive his word and we treat it not as the words of men, but as the word of God. And as we end this chapter, we see Paul expressing his heartfelt desire to see his brothers and sisters. In verse 17, He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. You see, Paul didn't care about prestige or about wealth or about influence. His only desire was to be obedient to the command of Jesus, to go and to make disciples of all nations. And the instrument that Paul used to accomplish this was his own life. In his final letter to Timothy, while Paul was facing imminent death for the name of Jesus, consider how he frames his life. This is from 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And by kept the faith, he means loyalty and fidelity to Jesus. I mean, that's obvious. But he also means that he's been faithful to complete the work that he was called to do. And that was to take the good news of salvation found in Jesus Christ alone and to bring that message to the world. And continuing in verse eight, henceforth he says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Paul recognized that he was a conduit. Seeing others set free in Christ and then teaching them how to walk in a manner worthy of God, Paul says that 
was his glory and his joy. That is what drove him. And that should serve as a challenge to us this morning when we leave. I would ask you to consider in your own life, what is your glory and joy? For us as Red Hills Church, what is our glory and joy? Are we driven by love to share with others the love of Jesus that was shown to us? Are we motivated by a heart of gratitude, overflowing with the grace that has been afforded to us? Or has our relationship with the creator of the universe been reduced to religiosity and cultural dogma? Have we allowed the cares and the distractions of this world to dampen our passion for Jesus and the call that he placed on our lives to take the gospel to a world out there? If so, the answer and the solution to that is simple. It's something that Marshall says all the time. The solution to that is to stare at the face of Jesus to receive the word of God and to let it change you, to become imitators of Christ. Because there's a world out there that is looking for hope. And we have the answer to that hope. But so many times we walk around acting like we don't know what it is that we have to give. What can I do? What impact can I have on this world? As an interesting side note, it's not pastors who are tasked with sharing the gospel. That's not in scripture. It's believers. It's disciples. Disciples are the ones who are called to take the good news of salvation in Jesus and to go and share it. But we've adopted this mindset that we go and we bring people, we bring them into church, and it's Pastor Marshall's job to evangelize them and to share the gospel. No, that's our job. Monday morning through Sunday night, that's our job out there. And so I pray that we as a church and as individuals, like the church in Thessalonica, that we would be known for our work of faith and our labor of love and our steadfastness of hope in Jesus. And that we would walk in a manner worthy of God and that our lives would reflect the joy of the Holy Spirit. My prayer is that we would see our lives as an offering to be poured out to God in loving and in serving those in our community. In Jesus' name, amen? amen. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.